We're going to have our Bible reading now, and today's Bible reading is from John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. If you'd like to use one of the hardback black church Bibles, then that starts on page 889. It's John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all in his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Terrific. Keep your finger there in John 4. We're going to look at that together. Um, as a child, I was not a reader by any means. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. I didn't even pick up a book. Um, maybe some of you are still like that. No, I'm just not a reader. But that's what I was like growing up. Um, so on the odd sort of summer day when my mom lured me into the library with a promise of an ice cream cone afterwards, um, it was absolutely foreign territory territory to me. Why? Why are we going to library? All there is there is books. This isn't interesting. This is boring. When can I get my ice cream? However, um, as we were sort of looking through the books, I stumbled across one book, and I thought, maybe this is it, and it was a Star Wars chapter book, and I was only eight or nine at the time, but I thought, you know, maybe I could, I could read this, and I looked at the front cover, it was so cool, there's about 20 characters on the front, and even in the middle, there were some of those plasticky pages with sort of the pictures and the cartoons, and I thought, I am going to be a reader now, I guess this is what it's all about, and I thought, man, I'm going to read every book in the library, maybe you feel like that when you go into bookstores, I'm going to be a reader now. And I went to my mom and said, Mom, I really, really want to get this book. She said, okay, well, we can, we can rent it or get it on loan. No, 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 I don't want to, I want to own the book. Can we buy the book? Well, Peter, that's not really how libraries work, really. Oh, uh, okay, well, what can we do then? Well, she said, we could make a copy of it if you want. I thought, you can make a copy of a book? Okay, we, I, guess, I guess we'll make a copy of a book then. And my mind started racing, how does this even work? Make a copy of a book. In my mind an actual physical copy of the book that I had. So I thought, how's this work? Maybe that's what the librarians do all day. I mean, they just sit behind desks anyway, so maybe they're copying books and hand-binding them, and we can get a copy of this book I wanted so bad. I thought, no, that would take too much time. Surely, though, surely there is a piece of technology that can do this. In my mind, it looked like a microwave, and I thought if I could get this book in this copier and press a couple numbers, then somehow I would have an exact copy of this book. And so that's what I had in my mind. I thought, this is how this must work. As we were about to leave, mom said, all right, you ready to go? And I said, yeah, but we still have to get a copy of this book, remember. Oh, okay, all right. And she walked me over 
to a very, very old, rickety, normal copier. And she said, we can make a couple copies. Wait, do you just mean a couple pages? Yeah, I only have five dimes, which is 50 pence. We can make a couple single-page copies. That was nothing what I expected. And so we left with sort of off-center copies of five pages of that book, and they weren't even in color. It was just the biggest letdown for me. I don't, it's nothing like I expected it to be. Or maybe you've had an experience like that in the past. You sort of conjured up some magnificent grand idea of maybe it's a place you're going or an event you're attending. And when you get there, it has none of the magic. Instead of leaving you sort of mystified, it's just a giant letdown. Now, I mention that because we are in our second part in our series through the seven signs of, John's, of Jesus in John's gospel. Let me go back there. And in this series, John is highlighting seven miraculous signs that Jesus does in order to show us who he is and what his kingdom is like. They're sort of a display of Jesus' power and identity. Now, normally when we think of seeing miracles, we expect something really dramatic, right? (laughs) Something supernatural, something out of the ordinary, something impressive, We want to see the skin cells being re-knit on the leper's arm. We want to see the color come back into the eyes of the blind man. We want to look into the basket and see the fish and the loaves being materialized. We want to be mystified by the drama of it all. You could say we want the pyrotechnics and we want the fireworks of the miracles. But as we come to Jesus' second sign this morning, it isn't what we'd expect it to be. This second sign that Jesus does is intentionally simple, and it's hidden. Hidden from all sight. Jesus refuses to give us the pyrotechnics and the fireworks that we want, which doesn't make all that much sense, does it? I mean, isn't the purpose of these signs and miracles to make us believe in Jesus? At the end of John's Gospel, he writes these words to sort of sum up what he's written. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Okay, so that's the purpose of these signs. Why are so many of them so cryptic? If Jesus really is who he says he is, why can't he just sort of show up and do something powerful to make you and I believe? Why doesn't God just explicitly show us so we would all believe? Maybe you've thought that before. If I could just see one of these signs with my own two eyes, then, then I'd believe. Seeing is believing after all, isn't it? But as we come to the second sign, we'll see that it's precisely because Jesus wants us to believe him that the sign is so veiled and hidden. It's precisely because Jesus wants us to believe that he hides this sign from us. Today, Jesus wants to realize that the opposite is true as well. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. I'm sure many of you are sort of scratching your head. I don't know what Peter's on about up there. But we're going to pick that apart in John 4 this morning as we see a sort of a desperate father begging Jesus to heal his son. But I'm going to ask, I need help as I preach. Would you pray with me one more time before we jump into it? Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we want to ask 
Um, as we've sung, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts. We ask you grant us sight and understanding. We trust that the words we read are your words. We trust that you speak. So help us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to jump right into the story again. Let's reread verses 46 and 47 together. Sorry, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. That's sort of review and get us up to speed. Let me just show you what has taken place up until this point. And I'll use a map to begin. So this is a map of where Jesus' ministry was, and his ministry starts at his baptism in the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River that connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, and he's baptized in Bethany, which is right about here. After doing that, Jesus goes up to Galilee, this area where he calls his disciples. After that, his first sign is what we looked at last week, where he turns water into wine. And that happens right here in Cana. Here's a little zoomed in right here in Cana. After doing that sign, Jesus then goes down, all the way down to Jerusalem in Judea, where there is the Passover feast. And if you, in your Bibles, just flip over one page to John 2.23, we read these words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So even though John says this is the second sign today, Jesus is doing other signs in Jerusalem. There's a crowd forming. There's popularity around Jesus. Who is this Jesus? After the feast is over, Jesus starts heading back towards Galilee. He stops in a city called Sychar, where he meets the woman at the well, which many of you will know well that story. After that, he goes back up into Galilee, and he goes back to Cana, where he did his first sign that John calls it, turning water into wine right here in Cana. The crowds are gathering. There's a sense of intrigue around Jesus. And we pick up the story here in Cana. And in the story, we're introduced to a man. We don't know his name, but what we do know is that he is an official. And that tells us something about this man. The word official in the Greek is the word basileus, which is a word to describe a ruler, someone royal, someone who has authority. It's similar to the word basilica, which is a type of building that's based off of sort of a big Roman imperial building of law and order and justice. So what we can gather from this small detail that there was an official at Capernaum, an important town on the Sea of Galilee, is that this man is powerful, he has people under his command, he's surely wealthy, He's respected. You could say he's at the top of the food chain, which is interesting because that's the last man you'd expect to come looking for Jesus, an official in Capernaum. And his reason for coming, he says, my son, my son is at the point of death. It seems that everything this man knows can't be counted on. His power can't save his son. His wealth, his command, his respect and it's not even as if this mature man, his health is dying. It's his son 
someone who has age on his side, youth, what should be expected, is all pulled away. And so this respected, commanding, powerful man comes fearful and helpless and powerless. He comes into a crisis. This is a father in crisis. Now I can only imagine the terror of seeing your child on the verge of death and not being able to do anything about it. I, I hear the stories of sort of parents not being able to hold their newborn child because they are whisked away to fight for their lives. Maybe some of you have been there. I can imagine sort of a, a restless desperation, trying to do everything you can, but an unable to bring about any healing that you want. This is the situation of this man that comes to Jesus. And he comes from Capernaum, to Cana. Now the distance between Capernaum and Cana is roughly 20 miles, which from this spot, if you were to, is roughly to the very center of Ipswich as the crow flies. That's the rough distance to give you distance in your mind from here to the center of Ipswich, a little over 20 miles. And it's not just a straight road on level ground either. There's elevation as well. There's about 800 feet elevation going up to Cana. So, even though he's going southwest, he says, I'm going up to Cana. Will you come down with me to Capernaum? This is an elevation. This is why he says, come down with me. Now, we don't know if this man walked, if he had horses. We could assume so, but it wasn't a 20-minute car drive. In fact, there's some reason to believe it took roughly five to seven hours to make this journey. And his request his request in verse 47. The man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Come down with me, Jesus. He wants to get Jesus from Cana to Capernaum. It's not like this man can call an ambulance or get his dying son emergently transported by helicopters to Jesus. He has to leave his dying son behind him no, no phones, no way of communicating. Walk 20 miles up into the hill country to beg this man, Jesus, who he's never met before in his life, to come back down and heal his son. That is a big request. Jesus, will you come back down and heal and save my son? Now, we don't know what this man had in mind. We only know he was desperate and he was looking for a miracle. If I can get Jesus to come down, if I can get him to come down to Capernaum, then my son might have a fighting chance. So he asked Jesus, will you come down? And then Jesus gives a very, very odd response in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? (laughs) What is Jesus? Why is this a point? No, he's asking, will you come down with him to save his son? What is this about unless you believe, or you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders? It seems sort of like a tangent Jesus is taking. Well, an important point is that even though it says Jesus said to him, it says, unless you see signs. Now, I don't know, in some of your Bibles, next to the word you, you might see like a, a sort of a footnote. If you follow that down to your Bibles, you'll see that this you is plural. So even though Jesus is speaking to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's saying, unless you all, or in Southern, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. 
Although he's speaking to this man, he's speaking to all those around him. So what does it mean you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders? Well, I think this is Jesus sort of commenting at his frustration at the people's unbelief. As you know, people are surrounding him saying, do another sign, do another miracle. And in his frustration, he says, you won't believe unless you see more signs and wonders, will you? He's frustrated that the people are so concerned with the signs and miracles that they can't see what the signs are pointing to. As, you, as we read in John 2, we, we saw that people were gathering and believing the things that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. If you flip back to John 2, verse 23 we read, but if we read just 24 and 25 as well. So starting 20, chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 23, it says, Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So people are gathering around him, but Jesus does not entrust himself. Why? It seems that's because Jesus is suspicious of these signs in and of themselves. He's worried that people are becoming too focused on the sign and not realizing what it's pointing to. He understands what's going on actually underneath in the people's hearts. And he can see that there's two reasons why sort of doing these signs is dangerous. Number one, he could just be another miracle worker. There's many people this time claiming to be able to give healing and to give insight, to be able to do wonders. And he doesn't want the people around him to have a sort of a sign-centered faith. Or you could put it another way, he doesn't want to become another one-hit wonder. He doesn't want to be reduced to the things he is doing. He's more than that. C.S. Lewis said like this, God doesn't do parlor tricks. God doesn't do parlor tricks. And this is what John is trying to communicate. Um, so in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, anytime Jesus does these miracles, they use the Greek word dunamis, which means power or ability or force. But when John talks about these miracles, he uses this word, simeon. It's a sign. John, in John's rendition, Jesus does not want to be equated with the things he can do. He is more than that. He does not want to be reduced to a man who can do wonders. You need to see what's behind the sign. And second, I think, Jesus believes that signs, as wonderful and powerful as they are, cannot compel faith. Signs cannot compel faith. Jesus doesn't sort of trust in the raw power of signs to compel faith. And I know some of you in here are convinced that if you saw a sign or wonder, then you'd believe. But sadly, seeing doesn't actually lead to believing. Seeing doesn't always lead to believing. Let me just show you. Later in John's Gospel, in John 12, we read this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Or in Luke's Gospel, this is fascinating. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, 
He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. You can look at the same sign and just say, there's just some weird sort of black magic thing going on there. I won't believe, even though I've seen with my own two eyes the signs and the miracles. Signs, raw power, the raw power of signs cannot compel faith by themselves. To bring it more sort of, to illustrate it uh, close to us, flat earth theory has kind of come up in recent decades. If you believe the earth is flat, um, you are very welcome here, but maybe that's it. <laughs> that's a discussion for another time. But flat earth theorists kind of have begun to look at the horizon, and they do have a point, the horizon is flat, but they say, look, I see the horizon is flat. I think this is all conspiracy. The earth must be flat. Now, if you were to say, hey, guess what? We've been out to outer space, and we have pictures, and it's a circle, it's a sphere, it's a globe. Let me show them to you. Do you think that will cause them to believe? Okay, what if we get an astronaut who's actually been out there, an eyewitness, and tell them? Will that sign compel belief? It seems the same sort of thing is going on here. Jesus is worried about just being a sign healer and people not understanding what's behind the sign. And then we read in verse 49, the man's persistence. It's as if the man doesn't even realize what Jesus said. He's so laser-focused. In verse 49, he says, The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The second request, again, come down. Come down before my child dies. He's not even phased by this frustration of Jesus. He has laser focus because his son is on the point of death. And Jesus responds in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Do you notice this is not what the man asked? (laughs) This is not what the man expected. The man wanted, the pyrotechnics, the pipers, he wanted Jesus to come down to Capernaum. But what does Jesus do? He sends the man home alone. How would you feel? (laughs) I didn't come here for five words, Jesus. I came for you to come down to Capernaum where my son is dying. And what does he get? 20 miles of traveling, leaving his dying son, not knowing whether he's going to live. Go, your son will live. Five words. Jesus' sign is intentionally simple, and it cannot be seen. It can only be heard. He gives us a word. And the miracle happens 20 miles away. Out of all the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels, this is by far the most remote and distant and hidden of his signs and miracles. So what Jesus does is he takes this man who's in sort of a crisis of life, and he pushes him a little bit further into a crisis of belief. From a crisis of life, he moves him to a crisis of belief. Will you believe me? It's time for you to go home now. Sorry, it's time for you to go home now. How do you hear those words? It's time for you to go home now. How hard would it be to walk back 20 miles with only five words of confirmation from a man you've never met before? Would you be willing in your desperation to take Jesus at his word? We read in verse 50, and he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus says, go, and the man goes. Instead of seeing and believing, the man hears and he obeys. Instead of seeing and believing, the man hears and he obeys. Now for this man, going home 
as simple as that is, surely was the hardest act of faith he ever had to do. How would you feel walking back the hours wondering if the five words of Jesus did the job? Some of you can probably relate to this man's experience. You, you sort of open God's word, you hear his promises that you're forgiven, that you need to pick up your cross and you'll find life. Trust that the last shall be first. Maybe you felt a call on your life from God and you've begun walking home. But you've been walking for 20 miles or 40 miles, 100 miles, waiting to see the sign for yourself. It's time for you to go home now. And then we read what actually happened in verse 51 to 54. Let's read that. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when, they, when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This man goes down, takes Jesus at his word, goes back down to Capernaum, and he finds that his son is recovering, healed at the seventh hour, the exact hour that Jesus gave those five words, go, your son will live. Now, interesting, it then says, and the man believed. Didn't he already believe? If you look at verse 50, it says, the man believed. But notice that in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him. Then here in verse 53, and he himself believed in all his household. In verse 50, he believed Jesus' words. He believes the sign But in verse 53, I think John is giving us a wink. He believes Jesus. He believes Jesus. He he believed the sign in verse 50. In verse 53, he can follow the sign to who Jesus is. And all of his household believed. This man was able to put the pieces together. He bridged Cana and Capernaum. He's the only one who heard Jesus give those five words. He's the only one who's seen his son live and is able to put those pieces together. He's the bridge between hearing those words and seeing his son live. He's the bridge between the sign and the signifier. This man was the only one who was able to see from beginning to end this quiet, remote, indirect sign. Having believed, 20 miles later, he sees. Having believed, he then sees. This is an amazing story. I think this is a sign for all of us this morning. So I want to ask, what does this sign mean? What does it mean for you and for me? Now first, I think it's this. First point, crises are an opportunity. Crises are an opportunity. I've often been asked, why is it that people often come to faith either during or after a major crisis in their life. Why is that the case? And I often hear people say, well, people are just sort of manipulated into believing in Jesus because they, they need some sort of emotional or spiritual crush or crutch to hold themselves up in those moments of crisis. But I, I beg to differ. Yes, I do know that many people come to faith during crisis, and there's a point to the reason why that is the, 
case. And that is, I think, actually, crises actually peel back what's actually true about the world in many ways, what's actually true about ourselves. That's exactly what happens to this royal official, the wealthy one, the powerful one, the respected one, the one who has his son's youth on his side, that suddenly peeled away, and the truth of his predicament is ever before him. Crises have, have the power of sort of peeling back the veneer of our sort of modern, self-reliant, self-sufficient life and actually showing what is actually the case. It's actually in the crisis moments that our false understandings of reality are peeled away and the true reality is shown to us. Crises sort of force us into the story. Instead of sort of sitting on the edges, skeptically intrigued by Jesus, crises bring you to a place where faith is actually possible. An illustration is that this past week, many will know, we started sort of the Easter season and the Lent season, and that began on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. Now, we don't necessarily celebrate Ash Wednesday here, but I think it is a beautiful picture of this idea, crisis or an opportunity. You may have seen people walking around with ashen crosses on your head, and you thought, what was that about? Well, it's a symbol that we remember that life is fragile, that you and me are created from dust, breathed into by God, yes, but we are destined to one day return to the dust. It's a moment before you go to work, Ash Wednesday, where a very simple sign of an ashen cross is put on your forehead, and you remember, yes, this is true. And I think, so, yeah, morbid. Why remind us? Because it's an opportunity to actually see. Crisis can be huge, and they can be dramatic, but they can also be small moments when you look at your life and you realize, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be separated from the God who is life, and I need Jesus. This is not a myth or a game that I can inspect. This is real life. Ash Wednesday is one of those ordinary days when the veneer of modern life is peeled away. And today, as we read this story, it's another one of those ordinary days when Jesus wants us to truly consider the predicament we find ourselves in. And he's specifically asking us, will you trust in my word for salvation? Crises are an opportunity to truly see our predicament. Today, as we look at this, this is a mini-crisis for us. But second, obedience is an act of faith. Obedience is an act of faith. For this man, his faith was simply putting one foot after the other as he walked home from Cana, to Capernaum. Obeying Jesus' word, you need to go home now. You need to go home now is a great act of faith. Now, he could have just kind of argued with Jesus. He could have tried and find another physician, but instead, he obeyed and he walked home. Now, please don't misunderstand me as I say this. I'm not saying you need to be perfectly obedient to be saved. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus said, God has already spoken his grace and his mercy over you and me. Even in this story, though, the healing of the official son, it is not dependent on the man's obedience to walk home. Jesus has already said, your son will live. Jesus has already spoken his grace and his mercy, and he has done the miracle already. However, the man was called to step out in faith and trust Jesus by walking home. 
If he never went home, he would have never seen. The call of obedience unlocks the situation where faith is actually possible. Or to put it another way, Christianity can only be understood from the inside and not the outside. Until you're willing to take a step of faith and obey his call on you, you will never truly see. Or illustrate it like this. I know that lunch is coming up next couple hours, and so what if I talked about steak for a while? Um, and I said, I prepared the, the best steak you could ever imagine. And I told you about steak, where the cow was from, what the cow ate, the technique of making it, the seasoning. And I talked about how juicy it was and rare and all these different things. And your mouth is watering. But until you take a slice of that and put it in your mouth, you will never truly understand Hear how ordinary Jesus' command is. Go home. What does that mean for you today that you need to go home? To step into the grace of God. Some of you have been sitting on the sidelines and you've been listening. You've been hearing the signs of Jesus. You've been seeing how he works in other people's lives. And you're waiting for that final sign that will seal the deal. You're waiting for the pyrotechnics and the fireworks before you believe. Maybe, maybe, Jesus is intentionally withholding the pyrotechnics precisely because he wants you to believe. I'm not saying this is blind faith. He gives us many signs and wonders and witnesses, but perhaps one more sign isn't necessarily going to seal the deal of your belief. In the crisis of faith, you have a choice. Will you step out and trust Jesus? Will you go back to the sidelines and watch from a distance? If you're looking for a sign today, this is the sign. Perhaps you're waiting for maybe that, that lightning bolt moment deep down in your heart that confirms, yes, I really do believe. That might come, but more often, trusting in Jesus for eternal, abundant life looks very, very ordinary. It means confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and living as if what he said is actually the truest thing about you, that you are a beloved child of God, forgiven, redeemed, headed for glory. And until then, you are called to pick up a cross and enter in a new way of being human in this world, a life that looks like and tastes like Jesus. Perhaps the act of faith is an act of obedience where you say, you know, I don't know for sure about this Jesus, but I'm going to take a step inside of this faith and live as if it's actually true. If you take that step of faith, you will then see it is true by believing you will truly see. What does it mean for Jesus to say to you, it's time to go home now? Third and finally, you can take Jesus at his word. Now, I'm sure many of us are thinking, okay, I'm tracking, but what about this whole asking Jesus to heal his son and then he gets what he wants and his son is healed? Does this mean that basically I can ask Jesus to save my child from sickness and he's going to do it? Is that what this means? I don't know, he might, but that doesn't seem to be the point that John is making here. The healing of a son on the verge of death is a sign of what Jesus actually wants to give you. He will do more than just heal a temporary illness. Jesus, again, doesn't want us to be preoccupied with the sign that we miss the signifier. Presumably, this boy that was, brought, that was recovered, he eventually one day died. And so did the official. 
So the, the offer is not sort of a temporary remedy to an illness. What is on offer is an eternal, abundant, everlasting life with Jesus. Just one chapter earlier in John's gospel, in John 3, Jesus said words that we know very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but nor that he might be saved, it might be saved through him. He wants to give you his only son so that you might have eternal life, not just temporary resuscitation before you die again. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, <laughs> I hope you can see I'm trying to lovingly push you into the center of the story. Will you trust that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save and forgive you This man had to take Jesus at his word before he saw with his own two eyes. And I promise you, you can take Jesus at his word. So I'm asking you, will you this morning? For others of us who who have trusted in Jesus and trusted in his signs, some of you have been walking home for miles, and you feel exhausted, and you need to hear the trustworthy words of Jesus again, the words that raise the dead, and open the eyes of the blind, and heal the sick, and forgive our sins and our trespasses. This promise that go home, your son will live, was specific to this one individual. But Jesus also has very specific promises for you specifically. So what I want to do right now, I want to read those, some words of Jesus' promises to you this morning. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to read some of the things that Jesus says to you. And as I read, I'm going to ask that you close your eyes, and we're going to read through and hear the words of Jesus this morning. So let's close our eyes and let's listen to the words of Jesus to us. Again, Jesus spoke, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. You can open your eyes. These are the words of Jesus to you this morning. Jesus asks us to believe his word in order to truly see. 
This morning we are from the dust. We remember that. But God gave up his only son to save us and grant us everlasting true life. The kind of life that does not thirst or hunger because we've found life itself, Jesus Christ. As we close, we began by looking at the purpose of these signs in John's gospel. We read the, the, these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This comes directly after Jesus has risen from the dead, as we talked about at the kids' talk. Except when he rises from the dead, one of his disciples doesn't believe. Let me read this as we close. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May we be counted among those this morning who have faith that will be turned into sight. May we trust Jesus when he says, it's time for you to go home now. And may we obediently step into the promises of God. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we want to ask again that you continually open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Jesus. We ask that our faith would not be a sign-centered faith, but a Jesus-centered faith. Lord, as we read your word, we recognize that you give us promises that are sure and trustworthy, as we've seen in the life of this man. So we ask Where our faith is weak, strengthen it. it. May you grant us by the power of your spirit to see and behold Jesus, life himself, the truth, the way. So we ask now as we sing, would you strengthen that faith and continually teach us how to believe. We pray this all in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.